This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this This is Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio. Here's your host, Christian Tervish. Welcome to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio. I'm your host, Christian Tervish, and we're here for you every Monday night at 5 p.m. Eastern, followed by replays throughout the week. The purpose of my show is to explore how work will change in times of globalization and digitization. I want to understand the work of tomorrow. Now in each show, I will talk with leaders from a specific industry and get their insight on what is happening today and how things are changing in the future. Today's industry is the police and security sector. Patrolling our neighborhoods, responding to emergency calls, managing traffic flows, police officers play really a central role in any city or in townships. The United States has over one million police officers on duty, duty that, does not include, uh, that does not include any private security officers. Recently, there's been many police-related topics in the news, uh, things such as police violence, uh, racial profiling, complex issues around school shootings and terrorist attacks. In my show today, however, I want to approach the job of a police officer from a slightly different perspective. I would like to find out how technology is changing the way that the frontline police officers goes about their work today. To help us understand this topic, I have two wonderful guests. Uh, in the first half of the show, I will be talking to Peter Newsham, who is the Chief of Police for the Metropolitan Police Department in Washington, D.C. And in the second half of the show, I will talk with Tom Joyce, who is the Vice President of Business Development at Digital Solutions. At this point, Chief Newsham, welcome. Christian, thanks for having me on. Uh, you joined the police department almost 30 years ago. Do you, do you remember your first year of service? What, what did a typical day look like for you back then at work? Uh, well, Washington, D.C. was a much uh, different city uh, back when I joined. Uh, we had a, a lot of violent crime in our city, um, and I worked in one of the more challenging areas of the city when I first came on. Uh, so we spent uh, a lot of time, unfortunately, uh, going from violent scene to violent scene. We had a, a lot of shootings. It was during the crack epidemic that many in the country were suffering through. Um, and it was really, it was really a trying time. Uh, you know, one of the things... I did learn from that experience, though, was that the folks, uh, most of the folks who lived in the community uh, had a real true appreciation for the police, and they, they wanted the police to be there, particularly in those times of, of high violence. So if you think about going to a crime scene, can, can you help a listener understand, like, how often time would you go out on a particular day? I understand there's no such thing as a typical day for a police officer, but how many times would you be called to a scene investigate something just give us a sense of the operations of a daily work day well it's you're talking about back when i first came on in the early yeah let's start with the old times so to say yeah it was um you know because we were in a high volume uh district uh and because i was a newer officer i was put on one of the, the busier shifts um it was uh it was a little overwhelming at times you know the amount we and it, it i have to say that it it seemed that in some cases we probably weren't staying on scenes long enough uh, because there was, you know, uh, we had to be there, uh, you know, to protect folks. And so if something, if we were on the scene of something and something more significant happened, sometimes we had to leave uh, before we probably really wanted to. Uh, so it was, it was challenging. And you would go out four, five, six times a day, or what is what is the cadence of a job? Yeah, like during during the evening shift, and it was particularly, uh, it seemed to be particularly on the weekends. It was not unusual uh, to go to three or four shooting scenes. Wow. Um, yeah. So it was, you know, and a lot of um, there was a lot of domestic violence scenes that we went to. Um, so it was it was a busy time. So if you think back thirty years ago and take one of these, you know, taking taking a call, going to a crime scene. What was different back then in the workflow compared to a police officer who gets the same call today? You know, it's really amazing uh, to, to look at uh, the amount of information that our officers have available now uh, that we didn't have then. Um, you know, we have the ability uh, to transfer uh, images directly out into the field uh, our officers can take reports in the field. Um, you know, so say for example, uh, a serious crime a crime occurs in the city, um, and you know, a city as small as Washington D.C. We're only about 67 square miles. Almost the entire district is covered in some uh, form or fashion by uh, a video camera of some type. 
Um, the people who are our, in our command information center have the ability to capture those images almost in real time because they have an they have access to a lot of that uh, video footage, uh, and they can share those images with um, officers in the field. So I'll give you a good example: if a robbery were to occur uh, in Washington D.C. and and the suspects were to flee into our metro system. Uh, we have officers in, in Metro Command that have the ability uh, to get images of those suspects and share them with people in the field um, in, in almost real time. Uh, that type of thing, you know, would have been unheard of 30 years ago. Uh, other things that we have is we have in our city, we have uh, license plate readers, and I'm sure you're familiar with those. So if someone in a vehicle, a suspect in a vehicle, flees the scene of a crime, uh, we have the ability to capture uh, that license plate on our license plate reader so you can give the police a sense of the direction of their escape route. Um, we have shot spotter technology, uh, which is, if you're not familiar with that, if any gunshot uh, goes off in our city uh, and it's in the area where we have the shot spotter technology, we get an immediate notification in our command information center and it gives us the ability to say, you know, first of all, frequently we'll, we will get that notification before we even get a phone call from someone in the community. So it gives us a, an opportunity to get to that scene quicker. And it also, what it does is it uses sound and it triangulates it. So if gunshots go off in a particular area, and when we get to the area there's nobody there and there's no witnesses, uh, we it gives you a pretty precise um, location as to where those gunshots went off and we can go to that area and collect for example if there's shell casings left behind we can collect very valuable evidence uh, those are you know that, that's some of the examples of some of the um, advances we've had in technology that really uh, gives us an opportunity to better police our communities in many business settings we speak about like a front office and a back office type of worker uh, I think the same concept applies here, right? You mentioned a central command center where people are sitting behind screens as opposed to being out there in the field. Uh, can you give us a sense of the, the ratio between officers that are out in the field or ready to go out versus people who are sitting more in, behind screens in central command centers? So we have, right now, we have a little over 3,800 police officers uh, on our department, and we have about 650 uh, civilian employees and all of our civilian employees in some form or fashion are providing support uh, to those officers in the field. We're really starting to really increase the number of people that we have in what's called a criminal research specialist position. And that's the position where, you know, the, those are the folks that are looking at screens and they're uh, pushing information out to our officers in the field. And the, the real value that I've seen in having uh, civilian folks do that work uh, for our officers in the field is that it eliminates a lot of the workload uh, for our detectives, for example. Uh, they can go in and they can search all of the databases that we have uh, relative uh, to a crime that has been committed. They can look at the things I talked about, the license plate reader, they can look at the video, they can look at the shot spotter, they can even go back and look at um, the criminal backgrounds of any suspects uh, that were identified uh, during the course of the investigation. They package this all up into a report, they send that report uh, to our investigators, and that gives our investigators the opportunity to, to spend more time out on the field doing uh, real face-to-face -face interviews. Uh, having that information gathered uh, by somebody else. Does this lead to a certain division? I'm just thinking about the organizational culture in the workplace. There are the folks who have gone out there who have experienced firsthand what a crime scene looks like, what it is to be potentially involved in a shooting. And then there are the people who have a more, and I don't mean it in a dismissive way, but a more comfortable job looking at a screen all day in the office. Is, is, is that hard for you as a leader to combine those two cultures? You know, it's it's funny you, you should mention that, and it's seem it, you know when you ask a question like that, it shows me that you're really in tune to it because uh, it's a real change in policing. A traditional police culture would have been uh, really somewhat resistant uh, to folks who sat in those roles. Uh, one of the things that we're uh, we've been trying to change is to try to change that old culture and the new culture. Uh, what our detectives and our officers is seeing is how much value there is uh, in having the folks do that work. And the relationships are really becoming, uh, in my opinion, 
they're becoming really good working relationships. And and really what it is, it's not a matter of one position being more difficult or, or you know, more comfortable uh, than another. What it is is people have a certain level of expertise, for example, in searching those databases, uh, whereas the person in the field may not have that same expertise, but they may have expertise in the face-to-face interviews. And, and both of those things are really critically important to success. So I, I've really seen, you know, you talk about changes in policing. Uh, there used to be that kind of, you know, they're, they're a civilian, they don't do what we do kind of thing. But now I'm seeing more of the, you know, we really need uh, those folks to do that work for us so we can do a better job at what we do. So as a person overseeing uh, both of these work groups, how do you set targets for yourself? I, I, you, you're running a big organization, so you must have performance measures and, and targets like every other large organization. How do you go about that? Well, you know, there's there's all kinds of measures that we have uh, for, for measuring our success. You know, the number one, uh, the, the, you know, the two things you want to accomplish in policing, the first thing is you want to be able to build trust with the community that you serve. And really, the only way to kind of measure that um, is through surveys. You know, you do surveys about the public. And, and the good thing about working in Washington, D.C., is even if we were to, um, to you know, uh, execute a survey, some folks would be a little bit, um, maybe look at that a little kind of um, carefully to say, well, you know, this is a survey that was created and implemented by the police. Sure, they're going to get a certain result. But in, in Washington, D.C., we have a lot of other groups that are trying to figure these things out as well. Uh, the Council for Court Excellence uh, recently did a survey about uh, policing and how the community feels about policing in our communities. And by and large, the survey came out fairly well. There's there's areas where we need to improve, um, but I thought that we 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 end up with a uh, pretty good pretty good grades in that survey. Uh, so that that's one measure. The and then the other measure is you know how successful is your organization in assisting uh, other government agencies in reducing crime in your city. And so I I always look at you know, how are we doing with regards to crime in the city? And, and I think that, uh, as you know, if we're able to reduce crime, then, it, then it's one of the measures of success. And then there's a whole bunch of other measures of, of successes. You know, how quickly can your officers uh, get to a scene in, in, the, in the event of an emergency? Um, you know, how do our uh, victims of certain crimes feel like they have been treated um, so there's, there's a whole host of, of things that we've got to look at in an organization this size. Do you look at these measures with some degree of skepticism? I th- I've, I've seen it in healthcare and other areas where I've done work where at some point when there are so many measures, uh, the people, uh, they, they measure because it's easy as opposed to measuring what they feel really ought to be measured. Do you think there's a certain inflation in measurement in, in your industry? Um, you know, I, I wouldn't say that. I think that, um, you know, you really have to be looking at everything um, that you can with regards to data. Um, you know, uh, in Washington, D.C., we recently rolled out uh, the body-worn cameras. Uh, the body-worn cameras gives you a, a tremendous amount of information about officer productivity, uh, you know, uh, responses to specific events. Uh, and I think I think that I think as a leader in in this type of a, an operation uh, where you know there are a lot of folks that are paying careful attention to what we're doing, I think you as the leader you have to pay more attention. So I haven't seen um, I guess to answer your question uh, any of the data that we've been given um, to be unnecessary or unuseful. I, I I try to take a look at all of it. So as an operations person, I love the concept of productivity, of course, and since we're talking about technology and how technology has advanced, um, can you give me an example? If, if you think something uh, as mundane as a speeding ticket, uh, is the kind of the number of minutes an officer has to spend on that speeding ticket, is that something that has come down over the years with technology, or is it still a very kind of similar amount of effort for an agent? Uh, it, it absolutely has, and we, you know we've just recently rolled out um, this technology to, and it's not across the entire department, uh, but for traffic stops in particular. And what this technology does, it actually has a scanner on it, 
Uh, and if somebody actually has their driver's permit with them, you can scan the permit, and it populates all the fields uh, in the notice of a, uh, infraction, which is our tickets or our you know, speeding or even our parking tickets. Uh, you can put the tag in, and it populates all the fields. So, so that's a huge efficiency, and it's a time saver uh, for our officers. And, and, you know, I don't like to talk about um, tickets in particular with productivity, Um because we don't we don't really measure how many um, we're not trying to see how productive an officer is by how many tickets they mm-hmm. write. Uh, it's more of the the value and the quality of the tickets. I mean, we have particular areas of our city um, where, for example, um, we need pedestrian enforcement or we need bicycle enforcement, or we have intersections where vehicles. You know, it's, it, the issue is with uh, cars and trucks. And so if we want to make sure when our officers are being productive, they're being productive in the right ways and in the right places. So staying with productivity, nevertheless, for the moment, if you think about investing more in technology, where is this going? I hate to say with a speeding ticket, but it's it's kind of such a kind of common case compared to, to murder and, and kind of uh, domestic violence cases. Um, so if you think about the next level up, and I, I am very familiar with uh, there's a next level of automation where basic cameras that automatically detect either speeding or red lights, and they can just automate the whole cycle. Um, how how far is that next level of automation? In the extreme case, you could put the sensor in the car, and the car basically sends uh, the police department a little email when the driver is speeding. Is is that are we at the level of automation where we've kind of maxed out, or do you think there's going to be a whole next wave going forward? Oh, I, I think there's almost definitely going to be a next wave going forward. You know, I don't know if Washington, D.C. Uh, is the same as other major cities, but I, I, I will assume that it is. And, you, you know, you have more and more people uh, on the roads, and the roads aren't getting any bigger. So I think that uh, technology is going to find a way. Um, you know, people uh, thinking forward are going to find a way to be able to do that in a more successful way. And, you know, I think you know this is that, in Washington, D.C., we do have the automated traffic enforcement, uh, so we do have the ability uh, to issue tickets, uh, you know, for people who are speeding uh, and uh, for red light violations uh, by way of the cameras. But I haven't found that to be a complete substitute uh, for police officers in the field when they see a violation. And I got to tell you, you know, I talked earlier about the relationship we have with our community. The community really expects uh, when they see a police car uh, and there is a violation of the traffic laws that the police officers will respond to that. Uh, it's a big concern that I get from my community. So if you think about uh, the kind of the more automated scanning of either facial recognition of tracking cars with red lights, the community is always pushing back a little bit in the kind of using words such as George Orwell, big brothering. Uh, how do you respond to that? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a balance. And I think that the way that you, you, you draw that, that balance is you listen to the community. Uh, you listen to their concerns about privacy. Um, you know, when we uh, rolled out the body-worn cameras, that was a big concern. You know, uh, police officers are frequently called into situations uh, which are private. They're, these are intimate matters. Uh, sometimes they occur in people's homes, uh, and they don't necessarily want that to be captured on video. You know, the arrest of a, of a person is a, is a very, you know, and I know that's public information, but it's a very personal thing. Um, and so you got to balance it. And the way that you balance it is you let, you know, you, you, you give your feedback uh, to the legislature, and then you let your legislature craft laws uh, that the community is most comfortable with. So you're drawing that balance between making sure we're safe uh, with respecting people's uh, rights to, um, to privacy. In case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Christian Tevish, and I have the pleasure of ch- uh, chatting with Chief Peter Newsham, who is running the police for the, the police department in Washington, D.C. And we're chatting about technology and how technology is changing the workflow for officers. Uh, Washington, D.C., as you mentioned earlier on, uh, Chief Newsham is kind of very active in face recognition and tracking people. Uh, and so speaking about this kind of this, this somewhat touchy interface between privacy and, and new technologies. So in case of a violent t- uh, a crime, you mentioned a bank robbery, uh, your back office would be able to track somebody going through the city, through the subway system. Um, 
where is the line if somebody uh, does a parking violation? Hopefully those those don't apply. And so, how, how where, where where is the line in the current uh, operation? Yeah, we we wouldn't use it for a parking violation. Uh, we would use it. For, we use it in, our, in what we call our violent crimes. Uh, so if we were going to uh, you know look for an image uh, for somebody. Uh, it would be in our violent crimes, you know, and, you know, the thing you have to keep in mind is there are a lot of uh, folks in our community who have their own uh, personally owned uh, security systems. Uh, and if you were to do some kind of a crime on their property, uh, there's nothing that prohibits them uh, from sharing that information with the police. Uh, and if we get images of somebody uh, who's committing a crime on your property, you know, we're going we're gonna to do the best we can to identify that person and make sure that they're held uh, responsible for that. So what is the trend in these kind of the, uh, image recognition is something that we see as, as much as when, when we unlock our modern phone these days. Uh, the images, we, we get recognized by our phone. How much of that is just happening in daily life as opposed, in many ways you can proactively start tracking people and build, build profiles of people so that when you need it, in the case of an emergency, you can respond quickly versus waiting till there has been a crime and then starting to do it post-talk. How, how do you, again, the, the, this is a line a little bit of like at what point do you start tracking people? Yeah, um, I, think, I think the line uh, has been the same for, for uh, quite a long time. And, the, and when it comes to policing, uh, the line that is drawn is if you, you are arrested, uh, they will take your fingerprints, uh, you know, they'll take your photograph. And once we have that, uh, that record, uh, unless it's expunged, that will be our record of you uh, going forward. Um, you know, and as you know, with DNA, uh, if somebody uh, is a convicted offender in the District of Columbia, so somebody who's convicted of a crime, uh, their DNA will be entered into the uh, convicted offender uh, database uh, that the FBI, uh, you know, c captures. And then if you're subsequently involved in a crime and your DNA is entered, then we'll be able to identify you that way. Those are the two, you know, the two biggest uh, collections of people's personal information that law enforcement uses. You know, we will go in, if we have fingerprints, we'll go into our fingerprint database and see if those match up. Uh, and the second one is the DNA database. There's not a lot, at least uh, here in Washington, D.C., that's going on with, uh, you know, just randomly going out and collecting people's information. Give us a little bit more of a sense of the scale of the operation. So you mentioned earlier on there are uh, close to 4,000 really sworn uh, officers, 3,800 I think is the number that you mentioned. Um, how, how, many, how many 911 calls do you get a day? How many arrests are there a day? I mean, from your perspective, you used to kind of track the you know, criminal one by one. Now you see, like you know, you see hundreds or thousands of them going through your system. How, give us a sense of kind of some of the numbers describing the magnitude of of your operation. Okay, so we um, we arrest more than thirty thousand uh, people in a year. Uh, last year we recovered uh, twenty one hundred firearms uh, in the District of Columbia, uh, and we uh, we respond to you know hundreds of thousands of calls for service uh, in the district. And those calls for service uh, range from anything to somebody uh, who is the victim of a theft uh, all the way up to uh, shootings and homicides. Um, so it's, it's, it's a big operation. Uh, and, you know, we were talking about, um, you know, things that we measure in data. Uh, one of the things that we try to measure, because the population in the district since 2009 has been steadily increasing. Uh, this month, we were actually up to uh, 700,000, which is, if you look back to 2009, it's almost 100,000 more residents that we've had living in our city, uh, uh, you know, when you compare us to 2009. And as you might imagine, our calls for service have increased, uh, you know, in almost the same fashion. And so what we look at is was with those calls for service is what is our response time to our priority one calls? Uh, and one of the things we've been able to achieve through efficiencies, a t technological efficiencies mostly, is that our uh, calls for service uh, time uh, to respond to a call for service has actually been reducing, uh, with those other two things increasing. And our and our force uh, has remained uh, just about the same size. So so you, 
I, I tell you that story to let you know that those those efficiencies in technology actually makes your force uh, able to do more with less. You know, if, if you can get a police officer, uh, and, you know, to be able to uh, handle the paperwork that they have to do for any event in a much quicker fashion, uh, it gets them out on the street and into the community where they belong a lot quicker. So you mentioned that your your ratio between police officers and residents has roughly stayed the same, has grown proportional to each other? It, it has. You know, back uh, before I was on the, the police department, we had as many as 5,000 police officers in the district. Uh, we, we stayed around uh, 4,000. Uh, we really recently went through a retirement bubble where we were down to about 3,700. So now we're back on the increase again. I think comfortably uh, we'll probably end up back around 4,000. Um, and hopefully, you know, while we're going through this process, that we're able to identify uh, more efficiencies and technology improves. Uh, so 4,000 will remain the right number even uh, as our population continues to increase. As a last question, maybe if you dare making predictions about the future, and I, I know the, those are hard in any profession, but if you if you think 10, 15 years forward, how does police uh, how how does police work look like in 15 years from now? Oh, that's a that's a tar tough question, but I do think um, that you know because you you mentioned this is one of the topics that we're seeing is is um, you know police violence. Uh, I do think that policing is going to find a way. Um, to have to resort to the use of a firearm in fewer and fewer circumstances. You know, there's, there's a lot of people that are questioning uh, some of the things that we are seeing in law enforcement across the country, and I, the leadership in policing is asking those same questions. And I think in 15 years from now, I think we're going to somehow find a way to safely and respectfully um, bring violent offenders into custody without having uh, to resort to the use of a firearm, or at least... Uh, that's my hope. Says Peter Newsham, the chief of the police for the Metropolitan Police Department in Washington, D.C. Thank you, Peter, and thank you really for all the work that you and your colleagues are doing for the security and safety of all of us here in this country. We need to take a short break right now. When we come back, I will welcome our second guest, uh, Tom Joyce, who is vice president for business development at Vigilant Solutions, a company that looks at image analytics and is serving the security uh, industry. You're listening to Work of Tomorrow. I'm Christian Tervish, and this is Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School here on Sirius XM. We'll be right back. You're listening to Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Christian Tervish. Welcome back from the break. I'm Christian Tervish, and this is Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio. We've been talking about police and the security sector today, and in the second half of the show, I now have the pleasure of welcoming Tom Joyce. Uh, Tom is the Vice President for Business Development at Vigilant Solutions, which is an image analytics company serving the security industry, including lots of the police forces at this point. Uh, welcome, Tom. Um, I'm happy to be here. Thank you, Christian. Tom, uh, prior to being at Vigilant, you had yourself a long career in the New York Police Department. Tell us about those old days. <coughs> oh, sure. Um, well, I was appointed to the New York City Police Department uh, back in 1986, January 9th to be exact. And um, the old days uh, were pretty interesting. Um, crime was on the rise from 1986. It was when crack uh, first emerged onto the U.S. Uh, law enforcement scene and within the communities. Um, and then um, it reached... Uh, a high point where crime was um, becoming really rampant um, into the early 90s and then um, there was a, a, a tipping point where um, the New York City Police Department took a position where this this crime rate and this rising crime um, had to just stop and there was a high level of accountability the CompStat process was uh, brought into play um, uh, where we held commanders uh, of the precinct and detective commanders and narcotics enforcement commanders highly accountable for the things that happened within their agencies. Um, and then the crime rate is, is, is history. I mean, everyone knows the, the fantastic reductions, not only in New York City, but across the country as that, as that approach um, um, swept through public safety and law enforcement with, throughout the country. And then, unfortunately, the events of 9-11 um, Although we did have a good handle on, on crime rates and crime reduction, uh, the events of 9-11 um, also had law enforcement agencies, and specifically in New York City, focusing on counterterrorism. So I think I was very lucky, um, if, if that's the right word, um, that I saw three very distinct 
um, cultures in a, a kind of a laid-back uh, reactionary police department in the early uh, part of my career, which is the late 80s, early 90s, then a high level of proactive policing and accountability for crime reductions uh, from the 90s to 2001, and then counterterrorism um, from 2001 until I retired in 2006. So it's been, it was an interesting career, and, and I was very fortunate to serve in the New York City Police Department. Now, Chief Newsham, early on in the show, talked about the role of technology and how technology is really changing the way that uh, police officers go about doing their work. Uh, Vigilant Solutions is a leading player in this space. Tell us about the products and services you provide to the police forces. Oh, great. Thank you. Yeah, um, Vigilant Solutions, at its core, is uh, an image analytics company. And what we've done is we've taken that image analytics capability and applied it to three different domains. Um, we analyze pictures of license plates, and then we turn that into solutions, data, and actionable intelligence. Um, we take uh, analysis of faces, and we do facial recognition technology, and we deploy that for the public safety um, customers that, that, that we serve. And then most recently, in late last year, uh, at the Inter International Association of Chiefs of Police Conference in um, uh, in Philadelphia, we released ballistics analysis where we take images of a piece of evidence in, in the form of a ballistics uh, fired cartridge case. We analyze that image and then we develop leads for, for the investigators and for the law enforcement agency on, on the ballistics. So image analysis, license plate readers, facial recognition, and ballistics. Now, as we discussed earlier on in the show, there's obviously some balance between privacy and the interest of security. Um, sure. I want to sidestep that uh, topic for a moment and want to just understand what is technically feasible. So if you would basically, if we would, there's always like a dial that I think the government, the the, judica, the, the, the authorities have to, to find the balance between security and privacy. If we would dial maximum on, 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 on security, what is technically feasible these days in face recognition? Um, well, I'm not, a, I'm not a technical person. I'm, I'm a practitioner. So to do a deep dive into facial recognition, um, I'm probably not the best person. But what I know is available to us right now is that we, um, public safety is presented with an image of an unknown person who needs to be identified for some, for some reason. And that might be an investigation as it relates to that person being a witness or that person may be um, a suspected offender. Um, we take that image and we go up against and we do matching. And what is feasible right now and what we are doing, there's no absolute um, um, determination that this image matches up against the previously acquired image and therefore it is in fact the person. That does not exist. What we do and what is standard practice for the law enforcement industry is when we have a probe image, that's the image that needs to be identified, and the person inside that image needs to be identified, we present, based on the facial recognition algorithms, a list of potential candidates. And that's critically important because the investigator has to take that list of candidates and the end user has the ability to decide, do I want 10 candidates or 20 candidates, 50 candidates, or the top 100, where the algorithm is suggesting these are the most likely people that you might want to identify, to use to identify the probe image. It is incumbent on the investigator to do much, much deeper investigative analysis in that they look at the image and go what we call the not the the, the, um, the human aspect, where they look at the images and they look for unique markings, what we call locks, like scars, marks, or tattoos, to say this has to be the same person. And then in addition to that, we ask the investigators to do a deeper dive into the background of the candidate to see were they available to do the crime, were they incarcerated or not incarcerated. If they were incarcerated at the time of the crime of occurrence, there's no possible way that this facial recognition match is, is valid. Therefore, it should be uh, excluded. Um, is there a method of operandi, um, modus operandi or method of operation consistent with the crime that's being alleged? And then we highly recommend a peer review 
that other people within the investigative office all look at the totality of the facial potential facial recognition match and then make a determination if that inf- if that lead should go out to the field to the investigator assigned and only then independent of the facial recognition um, probable cause to affect an arrest needs to be established by the police department so to answer your question at, at the tip of the spear is facial recognition does not absolutely identify a person. It presents a lead that needs to be further investigated by the detectives or the analyst. But as technology is getting better and the public space has more surveillance cameras than 10, 15 years ago, uh, what is keeping us from a situation, say there's a bank robbery down the street from here, uh, down Walnut Street, Philadelphia, there's a bank robbery, the, 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 the person is fleeing by foot, how easy would it be for how quickly could the police force basically track that person just by kind of images in the public domain? I mean, that seems to me all is something that sooner or later the technology is there to, to automate and just track that person across the city, no? Um, I think that is the ultimate goal. Um, and, you know, <laughs> we, we don't really like the word tracking unless you know that that person is a, a legitimate threat at that moment, and, and they could be an active shooter case or a threat to the community. But I can take you back to the Republican National Convention when we were testing facial recognition in the New York City Police Department in 2004, and the capabilities were not that great. And then if you fast forward to, to now, it is certainly much, much better. So in that same um, type of scenario that you're talking about, um, the improvements are substantial from where they were and where I remember them to be in 2004. Um, but it would really um, um, rely on the quality of the image and, and the fact of, you know, the, whether it's a high-definition camera or the quality of the image. And then was there any occlusions of the face? Were they looking straight at the camera? Were they off-axis or were they askew in any way? So the ability to do that is much better today, but I don't think it's anywhere near what TV or, or what, we, what we refer to as the CSI effect, that this technology is just absolute and it's perfect. I think, I think that the technology exists that you could do some of it. There will be some failures and false positives, and there will be some failures and false negatives. That's why it's incumbent on the end user and the person to be really thoughtful about the decisions they make when they're presented with a facial recognition match. Tom, tell us about your interface to the police department. So there's, I guess there's like a, in any industry, there's like a certain technology stack where you could just provide the algorithms and the software. The next right. level up is you could provide basically the, the cameras and the networking behind it. And the next level up, you could offer a service that is basically on demand doing certain matchings. Uh, so what is the solution that you provide? And what, what shape, uh, what business model do you provide uh, solutions to the police sure. forces? Well, currently right now, our facial recognition offerings are um, two specific areas. One is we can offer an online um, uh, cloud-based environment where we provide an investigative solution for facial recognition. Um, the user landing page allows for an upload of the uh, probe image. The probe is the suspect or the witness or the unidentified person that needs to be identified. Um, it's presented in a very easy and, and um, user-friendly way. Uh, and then they select a certain criteria for searching based on location, based on area, <coughs> excuse me, and then um, they run searches and then they're presented with that list. It's a very easy, easily um, viewed list of potential candidates and then the investigator has to do an investigative process towards eliminating those candidates and then vying down, um, down into a uh, potential suspect and then doing that process that I explained earlier. The second way we offer facial recognition is similar to the scenario that you presented earlier in that we can take streaming video mm. um, at certain choke points, and that's what's really important. Camera placement is important. Um, quality of the cameras are very important. And if they could capture a face that goes through a certain choke point, um, the software can catalog that face and then you set a minimum standard of matching reliability, 
and then um, in the background that system would be run against the gallery of say high threat persons and then if there's a potential and I use that word it's very important potential match um, we can send an alert to the end user at their desktop uh, and they can vet that potential match for is that a threat um, and then how do we handle um, we investigate that threat and then respond to that threat. So from a technology perspective alone, I'm just kind of working through the use case here. Imagine I would be sitting at my desk here at the University of Pennsylvania. I have a web page with a photo of me. We could upload that photo. If there is enough, there are enough cameras on campus, would we get a pretty good guess where I am right now? Would the camera be able to just take a regular photo, assuming that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm walking around in the public space to locate me? Um, okay, so that would depend on the number of cameras deployed. That would depend on where their placements are. And it would also depend on the, um, the positioning of those cameras and the quality of the image that they captured. And I would, in, in thinking the scenario that you presented, I would think that would, there would have to be an enormous amount of hardware deployed in that environment to be able to track, quote unquote, track your most likely last location. So um, I guess it's technically feasible, but it doesn't seem to be realistic in the current state of the world right now. In case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio. I'm your host, Christian Tevish, and I have the pleasure of chatting with Tom Joyce. Uh, Tom is uh, the Vice President for Business Development at Vigilant Solution, which is a company that has uh, specialized on image anal analytics to, to track uh, people's suspects and tracking. I would want to backpedal here for just for the moment to locate uh, in, in case of uh, crimes, especially violent crimes, to locate suspects and find them in the city. Um, we met, uh, Tom, you mentioned earlier on that the license plate is another area where you've kind of made a lot of uh, offerings to the, the police services. Uh, you see many police cars driving around with, with a little laptop just next to the driver. Um, I have fortunately never had to be in these police cars, um, but uh, I was always curious of what type of information are displayed at the fingertips of the police officers when, it come, when they're just tracking traffic. Sure. And I want to I make, make it very clear to the, to the listeners that um, none of this technology is, is, is considered tracking. These are very small points in times of data points. So it can be used to kind of form a very preliminary picture, but it is by no means tracking. So as it relates to license plate readers, and to answer your question, the license plate cameras that are on police department cars capture an image of a license plate when the license plate falls into the uh, field of view. It then, at that exact moment, it takes a <clears throat> snapshot of the picture and the vehicle. Uh, so there's two images, a close-up of the license plate and the vehicle. And then it also collects metadata in the form of date, time, and location. It does um, latitude and longitude coordinates, and then that those latitude and uh, Longitude and latitude coordinates can be converted to an address at a later time. So um, it's really um, a small little uh, amount of data uh, with two images, and it's captured. And then what law enforcement can do is analyze that image immediately for situational awareness and officer safety and community safety. If that vehicle has been previously hot-listed as a threat to the community, the officer will receive an immediate alert, and then that officer could take the appropriate action. So the trigger could be on either side, right? Either the police officer could say, like, this looks suspicious, let me see what this, what's going on, or the trigger could be embedded in the software saying, like, this vehicle is on some sort of a shortlist, and I should inform the officer that the car that just drove by in front of him or her would be on that list. That's correct. And that list, the, um, the FBI circulates the national... Um, hot list, uh, the NCIC hot list, National Crime Information Center hot list that has over 300,000 vehicles on it at any given time. And then that is not only just criminal um, and threats to the community, but it's also for safety for like amber alerts and silver alerts for Alzheimer's patients or, or anyone like that. Anyone who might be operating a vehicle that is either a threat to themselves or a threat to the community, those officers would be alerted. And that list is very extensive, like I said, over 300,000 vehicles every day. 
I was uh, impressed by when uh, Chief Newsham shared this, uh, kind of the, the use case of that tracking of that uh, uh, license plate recognition technology where basically in the case of a speeding ticket and listeners you shouldn't speed uh, even when you're driving to this listening to this show uh, but in the case of a speeding violation basically the officer is able to basically take a, the, recognize the image of the license plate and pre-populate then uh, the kind of the the the, the, the um, the penalty, the the ticket that you're going to get is is that is that technology? Uh, who are the other technology players? What? Wh how do you interface with other technology providers uh, in in this space? <coughs> well, we do not do any enforcement whatsoever at Vigilant Solutions. Our license plate reader technology is solely for police officers and for enforcement of high threat or or safety individuals, like I, I explained earlier. Um, as far as speed or red light cameras, we do not interface with those technologies at all, but our system does allow for integration and um, connectivity with all other license plate reader cameras <clears throat> and other um, systems so that in the event that we needed to integrate and share, that is absolutely possible. So as the Vice President of Business Development, I imagine you have s responsibility of kind of growing the business and finding other solutions. Uh, healthcare has been a space that I've always been fascinated by, by, and if you think about patients flowing through the hospital, current ways of uh, identifying patients have been both very in inefficient as well as uh, suffering from quality problems. Are those other industries uh, where, where you're looking for opportunities? Well, we have a, a, a group of people that do a whole bunch of research and development in new emerging areas, um, healthcare and uh, frictionless patients or frictionless, frictionless customers are all possibilities. Um, and you know what? It, what is technically feasible? And then, and you mentioned earlier from the privacy perspective, you know what our communities are comfortable with. Um, you know, we're we're taking all the technology and all the privacy issues very serious and hopefully yes we we have as examples like you mentioned um, new uh, capabilities coming out um, so we're yeah we we do a lot of research and development and we're always looking to expand our our portfolio technology that that's comfortable for everybody so one example that kind of got a lot of expansion uh, attention in the press recently was the idea of the Amazon store where rather than paying with a credit card or with your phone there would be some form of an image recognition is is that the technology that is that capabilities that you bring to the table or is that is that an Amazon uh, technology um I think the underlying technology is possible. I think about that as a consumer, not just as um, working for Vigilant in the business development role, but as a consumer. I love the convenience of certain technologies that just make things easier for me. So with they're taking a picture of my face and it can automatically charge at a point of sale in some commercial or retail, I'm comfortable with that. If I drive onto property for a retail location um, or some sort of service industry and they read my license plate and they know it's me and they automatically charge and I've opted in to those and I've met all the terms and conditions and the privacy statement and I've acknowledged all of those things, that's definitely something that we can do. Um, it, the future will hold and the, and the communities will dictate where those go. But I, as a consumer, am very excited about those possibilities. Well, it's like unlocking your phone by face recognition, right? The convenience aspect is clearly a, a plus, and as long as there are clear rules of engagement, I think that there's a lot of promise in that image recognition technology, right? Absolutely. I agree. So where do you see, uh, go back to the police forces, where, where do you see this going in the future? I mean, there is... Uh, there's like in, in, in any part of uh, government and government agencies, there's, there's efficiency, there's cost pressure. And so uh, the police department, again, going back to the discussion we had with Chief Newsham, has, has really done a, a lot of amazing work to just kind of keep improving technology, improving the efficiency and productivity of officers. Um, if you would think ahead another 10, 15, 20 years, wh what is next? Uh, so it's technology is capable to do more and more, and uh, there's unlimited demand, unfortunately, for policing in the sense that there is always going to be in society people who don't follow the law and the, the rules of the society. So where is this heading? Yeah, I, I think that the, the area that's heading mostly is, is the capturing of video. Um, although we don't sell standard video cameras, 
um, as our as our core capabilities. Um, there are videos being captured either through other solutions or with body-worn cameras now, um, drone technology and unmanned aerial uh, vehicles are going up in the air. All of these things are very exciting, and the capabilities are really exciting. But again, I must reemphasize the balance of, of that capability and technology and the privacy and the concerns of our communities all need to be in balance together. So um, from a technology perspective, I think it's very, very bright. Um, the capabilities and, uh, are, are going to be exciting. They're going to be dynamic. And they're going to be very helpful in terms of productivity and efficiency and speed to identify uh, high threats to communities. But we have to balance that, and we're always conscious of balancing the privacy uh, and working with the local law enforcement agencies and those communities and the laws that are currently in place or, or maybe even the laws that will be developed in the future. Um, and we'll just we'll go where the market takes us. So I'm just kind of fast-forwarding in my mind. I mean, the, the, the challenge will always be there in the sense that if we have more and more video feeds, you mentioned body cams, you mentioned drones, you mentioned cameras in public spaces, there, there are more and more because the unit cost of capturing an image is going down. So we have more and more supply of images. The cost of, there's nobody, no human being who could watch all of that, uh, at least not before it has been triaged the way that, uh, Tom, you described earlier on. And so uh, image analytics seems to be like really one of the top technologies uh, in, in the future. You seem to be positioned very well here. Yeah, sure. And I, I can give you an example. There was an incident that I'd rather not speak to specifically, but you can imagine um, <clears throat> a very high-profile case where there was hours and hours, probably hundreds of hours of video footage, and they needed to identify certain objects and certain types of ve uh, vehicles and certain people, uh, certain descriptions and articles, and that can be accelerated with dynamic uh, video analytics. So they could reduce those hundreds of hours of, of people time down to minutes of doing the image analysis and then only capturing that moment on that video and then analyzing it and then making a decision. So certainly video analytics is a strong, strong area in the future. Says Tom Joyce, uh, Vice President for Business Development at Vigilant Solutions. Thank you, Tom. Well, thank you, Chris. I appreciate it. And uh, uh, everyone stay safe. Everyone stay safe. We've reached the end of the show today. Uh, I want to thank again both my guests, uh, Peter Newsham, the Chief of Police for the Metropolitan Police Department in Washington, D.C., and then Tom Joyce, Vice President of Business Development and Vigilant Solutions. I was fascinated by hearing from the front line of what technologies are available in terms of helping the officers to keep our security, sa uh, the communities safe. Uh, clearly, there is a balance that we have to find here between the interests of the individual for privacy and the need for the public of security. And that's a long topic that we can discuss at another time. For now, uh, I want to wrap up by thanking my uh, sound expert, Daniel Bruno, and my producer, Matt Dads, for their wonderful support. You can hear us again coming Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern. I'm Christian Tevish, and on behalf of all of us here at the Wharton School, thank you for listening. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.